Booney, thank you for leading us in that time. And I do want to encourage you in the, in the days ahead and months ahead, please keep uh, our, our leaders uh, local and our state leaders and our national leaders in prayer. Uh, we find it, uh, oftentimes find it easy to be critical of them and critical of their decisions. Uh, and I'm sure at some level, uh, at some times, uh, the criticism uh, can be warranted. Um, but at other times, uh, we will spend more time criticizing them uh, than we will praying for them. Uh, and I want to encourage encourage you, and you encourage me in that, uh, that when we find ourselves critical of those who are leading us, um, and if you hear that from me, remind me so that uh, I will address that issue uh, prayerfully. One, asking forgiveness, and two, spending more time praying for them than being critical of them. Um, these are men and women who serve, who who also live life and walk through sickness and hardship and family struggles and sin and those things. Uh, and their lives are more than just what they do in the way of their service. Uh, they are image bearers of God. They're souls who ultimately uh, need a relationship with God in Christ. Uh, and we as a church uh, have that message and can help point them to it. And then as you have opportunity to uh, interact with them, uh, find out how we can pray for them, uh, and then let them know that we will pray for them and that you will pray for them. If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Our text this morning is chapter 5, 6, and 7. Uh, some of you may already be conjuring up thoughts of how is that going to go today. And you may even check it's eight minutes, nine minutes now after 10. When might I expect <laughs> to leave? And some of you may say, uh, like some of my dear brothers here, I already have my exit plan. <laughs> uh, just bear with me if you will. Uh, we probably do need to preface our time together today uh, with just kind of a word of explanation. Uh, you may be wondering, uh, as we've already thought about it, and I would be if I were in your shoes as well, um, why try to tackle all of this uh, in, in one text? Uh, and why are we only going to give one week to the Sermon on the Mount? And, and that is a reasonable question, too, by the way. Why would we only do that? And I want you to know, first of all, it's not because I believe that it's not important, uh, because uh, that is the exact opposite. I believe that it is so important uh, that in due time we need to come back and concentrate our attention on these three chapters apart from our objective and even looking uh, at Matthew. But we can't see it apart from Matthew um, so I think it is important, I know it is, and I know it's incredibly weighty. And you will, you'll grasp that today just from the few comments that we'll be able to make about it. Uh, second thing is, is the more I have read it in the context of the Gospel of Matthew, I'm convinced that that sermon, this sermon that we will kind of, we'll kind of look at it broadly today, I believe that the sermon is better understood uh, after we understand the message of Matthew as a whole. Uh, so to understand the sermon in the context of Matthew, we need to understand Matthew. And that's what we're trying to do in our looking at Matthew. Now, I know there an argument could be made, and I've thought through this. I know an argument could be made, but Jimmy be reminded that the Sermon on the Mount comes early in Matthew. It doesn't come at the end of Matthew. So uh, if you're saying that it would be better understood at the end of Matthew, uh, why would the Holy Spirit not have put it at the end of Matthew? I, I get that, and that is a logical argument as to why I would make the statement. I have just, though, in looking at Matthew, I believe that we as believers will better understand uh, 
the sermon and what it is intended for piece by piece when we're parsing it, if we understand that Matthew did not end his gospel at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, as a lot of people try to deal with the Sermon on the Mount as, is, as if it is the end of the story. Now the end of the story comes in chapter 27 and chapter 28. In other words, we're looking beyond this sermon and it is Matthew's intent for us to look beyond this sermon and look all the way to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And as we get there, we're able to look back on the sermon on this side post-resurrection and say, okay, now what does this uh, sermon mean? So that's part of the reason why I say that we probably will do better in understanding it after we have completed Matthew and we'll come back in some time and look at this, uh, at this sermon. But we have to admit that there is a reason that this sermon is where it is in the context of Matthew's gospel. Now just think about where we've been. We have looked at Christ coming into the world and we have looked at the prophetic word coming from the Old Testament that pointed to all of these aspects of Christ's life. We looked at the significance of his baptism and what it meant. And then last week, we went to the temptations and we looked at the temptations of Christ and said, okay, what does it mean and what does it say? And we honed in on that. Now I want you to take your copies of Scripture and turn to chapter 4. You're there in chapter 5. And I want us to look at what happens after the temptation of Christ. Look, uh, beginning there in verse 11, that kind of ended everything. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now look down in verse 17. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying... Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 18, it's kind of a sum, that was a, that's kind of a broad summary statement of what it is that Jesus does after he comes out of the wilderness. He begins to preach. And what does he preach? He preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then kind of a broader summary statement in verse 23, and he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Kind of a broad statement of the way his earthly ministry was taking shape. He was preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That is the context. That's the context. So we see a summary statement of Jesus' ministry. And the emphasis, again... The preaching of repentance and the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. And there were miracles attached to that pointing to the fact that this is, this is, this is God at work in our midst because the kingdom is at hand. But the emphasis being his preaching of repentance and the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. Now you'll recall, Matthew, we've already pointed that Jesus is the promised king, the one who came to fulfill God's promise and the covenant that he established with David. We already saw that the kingmakers from the east came and they acknowledged him uh, sometime shortly after his birth. And now we're 26, 28 years later, depending on where we want to find, find out where he when, he was, when, when the kingmakers actually came, but about 28 to 30 years later, and Jesus is now a grown man, and he is now busy about his kingdom's work. But now this is what we need to pay attention to. We have a king, and he is pointing to a kingdom, and he's talking about a kingdom, but nothing about what he is doing resembles 
the work of an earthly king. Nothing about what he's doing. He's not establishing a political party. Uh, he's not coming in to plan a political takeover. He's not planning a military takeover. He's doing nothing that we would expect to see or that Israel, that the Jews would expect to see in the establishment of an earthly kingdom. So we have to say that this kingdom is a real kingdom, but it is not what they are expecting. And we'll look at that even more uh, as we go along. But he says that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, later on in a response to the Pharisees, it's recorded in Luke's gospel, uh, chapter 17, he says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. In other words, this kingdom that he's talking about, when will the kingdom of God come? So we're not talking about a different kingdom. When would the kingdom of God come? He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is. Or there, there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So we hear two things. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And according to Jesus, the kingdom is in the midst of the people. But it's not going to be seen in some kind of flash in the pan. Some kind of spectacular event. It's not going to be seen and observed in that way. Not going to be recognized in that way. It's not coming in a way that was going to draw public attention. Not going to be a political takeover. The kingdom will gradually and subtly be established. Now I want you to catch that. That's going to be true as we track on through Matthew. And for those of us who are in our connect groups and we're working through Luke's gospel, you're going to see the same thing. And you're going to hear it over and over again. So that brings us to this sermon. Matthew places this sermon next in his gospel immediately following Jesus' period of temptation. And I believe he does so because he has prefaced everything by saying that Jesus is preaching the message of repentance. And the presumed question would be, what is repentance? What does it look like? And how does repentance relate to this kingdom? Those are the presumed questions. So we've looked at it in its context. We hear and see where it is in the context. So the second thing we want to consider is how does this sermon help the audience, Jesus' audience, Matthew's audience, and us today, how does it help us see the relation between repentance and the kingdom in other words what does it say to us regarding this well let's just take a breakdown just and that's just how how the message will go today we're going to look at a basic breakdown or outline of this sermon uh, and we'll make some comments along the way about how it helps us understand the relation between repentance and the kingdom and why this is so significant and then we will conclude with uh, uh, some ways that maybe we can apply it, okay? This won't do everything that we need to do for the Sermon on the Mount because I, granted, I'll tell you, I, I've outlined the Sermon on the Mount in five different ways. But I'm only going to deal with one way. And we're going to look at it through the lens of this relationship between repentance and the kingdom. First thing we see is that Jesus has the kingdom in mind when he preaches this sermon. In fact, it's exactly what he has in his mind. First, we see this in the Beatitudes. So look at chapter 5. Look at beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For what? For theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. Blessed are those who are mourned, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what do we have here? Well, what we have here in the Beatitudes are a description of a deep-seated character of a citizen's of this kingdom that he is talking about. And we know that because the very first beatitude and the very last beatitude say what? Well, let's look at it again. Verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now look at the last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Every other aspect of the Beatitudes is sandwiched between this pointing to heaven, this pointing to this kingdom, this kingdom that is not an earthly kingdom, but this kingdom that is being established. All, other, all these other characteristics are couched between them, and notice that they are all blessings. They are blessings that are only understood and realized in the context of this kingdom. All of them. Bracketed. Put in here. So between repentance, a, a spirit that is poor and repentant and broken, coming into the presence of God. In other words, from repentance to the sanctifying work of God in the life of those who are in this kingdom to the point of the willingness to be persecuted and even die for this kingdom, sandwiched between that are all of the blessings that come flowing from a deep-seated description of a character. Not a prescription, but the deep-seated character now how does this relate to repentance well think about it for just a moment jesus is preaching repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand repent from what there is something and i use that deep-seated there is something at the very at the very core of the being of every individual that needs to be turned from for this character to be realized within them. I want you to look at the second of these character qualities that are illustrated in a recognition and a submission of the spirit of the law. So we see that in the Beatitudes, but now let's look at verse 17. And we had this as part of our confession this morning. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. You've probably heard this explained, but if you haven't, just for just a moment. Uh, Hebrew language has an entirely different alphabet, has a Hebrew alphabet. And at times... There is a dot over a particular letter or a little hash mark that comes in relation to that letter that would change the same letters in the seem like the same word, only there's a dot or there's a little hash that changes the word. Not just the tense of the word, changes the word entirely into a different word. And Jesus is simply saying that not even that little speck will go away. In other words, the law is specific and is important. And as Mooney drew our attention to it, notice what he says. He says, and not a, an iota or not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Again, we're pointing back to the kingdom. And then hear this. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I think that may be the centerpiece. Certainly one of the most significant things that are stated in this sermon. So we have two things that we need to pay attention to. We have a comparison made that let the people know not to be confused by the example of the Pharisees. What was that example? Well, the Pharisees had lived according to the letter of the law, so much so that they sought ways to define what the law must mean, and they had given their lives to living to the letter of the law. Their righteousness was centered in keeping the letter of law. And what does he say about them? He says, they're not in the kingdom. They're not in the kingdom. The righteousness necessary that enter the kingdom must exceed their righteousness. In other words, they were doing a great job at keeping the letter of the law inasmuch as they decided that certain parts of it were important. But they were straining in a gnat to keep the letter of the law. And then Jesus is telling His listeners, and Matthew is telling His listeners, and we are hearing today, what? That unless our righteousness exceeded that, we wouldn't enter the kingdom. Now, let that soak in for just a minute. He isn't pointing the people to keep more laws or to keep them better. And he's already given us two clues to this, that this is not what he's talking about. The first one is, is as we looked in the Beatitudes, he gives a description of the deep-seated character of one who is in the kingdom. In other words, he is giving a character description of himself And he is connecting that with the individuals because we know that he's connecting with the individuals because he said, blessed are they, blessed are those, blessed are these, blessed are these. In other words, these are persons with this deep-seated character that now will be kingdom people. On the front end as they come in and on the end as they give their lives to and everything is sandwiched. So we already know that he's not pointing to keeping more laws or keeping them better. But there's another thing that he tells us here. And we looked at that a little bit ago. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now the question is, what did he mean? What did he mean by this? Well, we see that he wasn't willing to set aside the law or its demands. The comparison is between either abolishing or fulfilling. And he says, I'm fulfilling, I'm not abolishing. He said he came to fulfill them. What did he mean? Well, part of the understanding of this is to understand what he meant by the law. What is the law? Notice he referenced the law and the prophets. This is kind of historically speaking, the law has been understood to have been divided into kind of three different categories. And I agree that the Old Testament probably, the Old Testament lays this out. Okay, so when he's talking about the law, he's talking about all of the law. And here are the three categories. There's the moral law. Now, what is a moral law? When we look at the Ten Commandments, it says that thou shalt not murder. That is a moral law. It was also a civil law. But it is a, it is a moral law that stands, stands, that, that stands even apart from civil law. It's in the civil law, but it is a moral law. Then there is the civil law. And how would we draw a distinction there? Well, maybe one way to do it would be looking at Leviticus, and we're not going to turn there now for the sake of time, but looking at Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23 through 34, we hear about the redemption of property laws that they have, which becomes a civil law. This is the way property is redeemed in the course of the way that we, we govern ourselves and we structure ourselves. And then we have the ceremonial law, and that's all of the laws that were tied to their worship. 
the temple, their sacrifices, their feasts, all of those things. We're talking about ceremonial law. And this is clear in the Old Testament. But we hear that Jesus referenced not just the law, but what did he say? Notice what he said there in chapter 5, in verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Okay, so we're not just talking about just the law, the law and the prophets. But what did the prophets do? Well, the prophets pointed to him. All of the prophets pointed to him. I think maybe what he's saying here in a kind of a, in a broad sweeping statement is that all of the law pointed to me, all of the prophets pointed to me, and I am here to fulfill all of the law and all of the prophets as they pointed to me. If we take that to be what he means, and, and I think there's reason to do that, then what we see in the midst of this sermon is not just a restatement of the law. It's not just another code of ethics. It's not even enhancing and intensifying the law, which in some ways it does. But he is placing himself in the very center of this sermon, pointing to the fact it's not just him as an individual who is not saying we're going to abolish the law, but it is him as an individual who's saying, I'm standing in the presence in this, in this kingdom. I'm standing here establishing a kingdom because everything about the law and the prophets pointed to me and I stand as fulfillment of all those things. Some of you who have learned creation across in preparation for some of our work uh, internationally, you know that because we're speaking with Muslims, we put a lot of emphasis on the Ten Commandments. And in speaking of the Ten Commandments, we often say, and I think rightfully so, that the Ten Commandments, as does the Beatitudes, gives us a picture of the character and nature of God and His goodness, and His righteousness, and who He is, and what He is about, and how that is seen and understood among His image bearers. So all of the moral law pointed to the character of God, which pointed to the incarnate Christ. The civil law. And it's idea of justice and a kingdom and that there's going to be a rule and there are rules that govern this body of people in the setting of this civil life pointing to the fact that there is going to be another kingdom. But then the ceremonial law, every piece of it pointed to Christ. We know that's the case without rehearsing it as we work through Hebrews. What did we see? That every point of the ceremonial law pointed to Christ and who He was. There was the fulfillment of this and it has been fulfilled. Now does that mean that Christ kept all of the moral law? We know that's true. We saw last week that He stood up in the face of Satan and in this onslaught of, of outward temptation and He stood whole and complete and stayed steadfast to honor his father. And he does that throughout the course of his life. That's the reason why when we get to Hebrews chapter 4 and chapter 5, we find that we have a great high priest who has suffered like we are in every way, tempted as we are, yet without sin. But he came to fulfill. And he points to that in this sermon. The prophets pointed to him. And Jesus fulfilled everything that had been said about Him, which ultimately was what? Ultimately was that everything begins and ends with Him. The relation of repentance to the kingdom is a turning away from the efforts to keep a law as a means of righteousness and salvation. But remember while there's a turning away from these things, there's a turning to something. And what is being turned to is the one who has fulfilled the law.
Now let's fast forward to the end of chapter 5 so that we get a sense of what is being stated here with him in the middle of it. Look at the very last verse. So if we haven't gotten it already, he's not given us a code of ethics to live by to earn salvation. And I think we know that. But let's understand how serious this is. The last verse in chapter in verse 48, he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That was the end of that. That was the end of him dealing with the law. Here's the point. You be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want you to pause there for just a minute. I want you to ponder that statement. How many of us meet that standard? How many of us have ever met that standard? How many of us can meet that standard? How many of Jesus' audience was able to meet that standard? How many of Matthew's audience was able to meet that standard? The psalmist said what? Remember from Psalm 53 this morning? The psalmist said what? I'm going to paraphrase this. Is that God looked out over the course of all the earth. And He did not see not even one who was good. But all stood opposed to Him in rebellion and sin. This sermon is not about what we can do to earn salvation. Historically, this sermon has been used, the Sermon on the Mount has been used as a, as, a, as, a, as a new ethic for seeing the world turned around. I heard someone Friday make a comment that what America needed was for us to return to morality. Somehow or another that that would save and save us. I don't think the context then was saving us to get us to heaven, but saving us. But mind you, there are those who believe that all we need to do is become more moral and everything will be okay. We don't have a lot of context for it because most of us don't know a lot about church history. But it hadn't been too many years ago. In fact, it's been about a hundred years ago that people who were well-meaning and it's interesting that it's been about a hundred years ago too because we've been going through all this social justice stuff well about a hundred years ago you know what they were dealing with social justice things and out of that came the social gospel you know what sermon they used for the passage of scripture they used to support their efforts in the social gospel the sermon on the mount and it sounded great That what we need to do, we need to implement this on our culture, implement this on our society, and all of our problems will go away. And it will be settled, and we will turn this thing around, and we will have utopia. But that is not at all what Jesus was saying. What Jesus was pointing to, these are the deep-seated The Beatitudes, this is the deep-seated character of those who are in the kingdom. And this is what it means when they get to the law. They realize we can't keep the law. But Jesus has kept it and He has fulfilled every piece of it. This brings us to the next part of the sermon. We see it in chapter 6. We haven't left the idea of the kingdom and we haven't left the idea of repentance. Notice what is in the prayer that Jesus teaches. In this piece of worship, in this piece of communicating to God, what is at the heart of this? Our Father in heaven. Now follow this along with being poor in spirit. Okay? I want you to catch this connection. Because everything that Jesus says in, the, in this whole sermon flows out of those beatitudes that begin with a poor spirit receiving the kingdom of heaven being in this kingdom, and one who is persecuted, in other words, willing to die for all of this, 
and receiving all these blessings in between, all of this, everything else that he says flows out of that. They are purposely in the front. They are not at the end. And what do we hear? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Which means what? My name's not hallowed. Yours is. Removing self. Hallowed be thy name. And then what he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Here's the relation of repentance and the kingdom, where they come together. Repentance is a change of mind and heart and attitude toward a keeping of the law and the law where there is now a heart for the heart of the law and now there is a heart for the kingdom of God and our submission to Him. And how do we see that fleshed out? Well, we see it fleshed out in the rest of chapter 6 by looking at the desires and ambitions which are couched in, again, kingdom language. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And we won't look at these in detail, but go back and read them and look at how they are compared over against the anxieties and the struggles and the desires and the wants. Now, the desires and the ambitions are in submission to God. Repentance, a turning away from those things and now a turning to God where life is lived with the kingdom of God at the forefront of all of this person's mind and heart. And then finally, we see repentance and kingdom coming together again with an understanding of judgment. Look at chapter 7. It starts out, and this all has to do with relationships. Okay? All has to do with relationships here. Judge not that you be not judged. For the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. And I want you to catch this. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? It doesn't mean that at this point that we don't care about our brother and how they're struggling. You know what I see when I see this? Your sin is recognizable to you even when mine is not recognizable to me. But my sin is recognizable to you at times when you can't see the sin that you struggle with. It points back to what we've said all along is that we all here are standing in need of something that apart from Christ we would never have. And now our relationships change because you see the context and the background for this is that the majority of the people that Jesus was speaking to were looked down upon and judged by the Pharisees and the religious leaders because they stood above them because their righteousness seemingly was above the righteousness of everyone else. And Jesus acknowledged that. Their righteousness is not your standard. And that's what you're looking to, and that's what you're trying to attain. That's their example. That's what they've taught but unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, and that is not in the keeping of the letter of the law, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven either. They're not, and you won't. They're looking down in judgment on you, and you're looking up trying to see them as a standard, and now the relationships are torn down to where we acknowledge our common ground in sin and need of repentance. But that's not all that's said in this text. Look in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. 
For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Again, judgment. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Let's read on. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. I'll push pause there for just a minute. The kingdom will not be observed, remember, Jesus said to the Pharisees, will not be observed by a flash in a pan, a big event. I find that interesting. And yet, when these come, they will be recognized by their fruits. That will be observable by you. In other words, the character that has been described by those who are in the kingdom is something that is clearly recognizable, but it is not spectacular in the sense of what the world is looking for. But it ultimately is the game changer in all of life because it is in that character that we find in the Beatitudes where the kingdom sandwiches everything that comes in the course of the life of those who believe. I find it interesting here that the end of the passage, this is what we hear. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will what? will enter the kingdom of heaven. Comes back up again, doesn't it? But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The sermon that Jesus preached is not a sermon about how to do better. It's not a sermon about a list of new rules and laws. He wasn't replacing a law. He wasn't replacing an ethic. And yet we can't get away from the reality of what has been described. What we can know and what we do know is that at the heart of this sermon is a description of those who will be in the kingdom and those who are in that kingdom. But they are only in that kingdom by virtue of what He does, which is why we have to go to chapter 27. To see, none of us are perfect in keeping the law and can't be. None of us are perfect before God. He fulfilled all of this. And in His fulfillment of the law and prophets, part of that fulfillment and the consummation of that fulfillment Rest in His death and resurrection and then ascension. And then all that would follow with that, enabling and empowering this kingdom. This kingdom. The one that He has described. Where does that leave us?
it leaves us as we always find ourselves in need of the goodness of Jesus. It leaves us in need of His shed blood. We sang it. Leaves us in need of His righteousness. Take your worship guides and look at the hymn, The Solid Rock. We sang it earlier. Jesus came to save His people from their sins. He preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then He gives this sermon that helps us see and to understand what the repentant life looks like. He was helping them see and recognize the very nature of their sin. And this is his teaching. And when we get to the end of Matthew's gospel, what is it that we hear in chapter 28? Go ye therefore and make disciples, preaching and teaching all that I have taught you, all that I have said to you. And this is what he has said. And so we come to this hymn and we say, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And I think we could say, My hope is built on nothing more than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We're going to come to the table in just a moment. And I want to appeal to Matthew's gospel. We'll read it twice, but I want you to hear it now. Before his crucifixion, this is what he said. Disciples gathered around him. He's driving home this point. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And He took the cup and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. A covenant that was being struck by and upon His blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I'll not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's incumbent upon us today to give consideration to our own lives, where we are in terms of our efforts to earn the favor of God as it pertains to our own goodness and seeking to be righteous and seeking to live by this ethic and seeking to minister out of this ethic for the ethic's sake. Or the other side of that would be to see where we are as we come poor in spirit receiving the kingdom And by and through the sanctifying work in the course of all of those blessings, be sandwiched with that and saying, 
that we give our lives totally and completely, even in the face of persecution, for this kingdom and for the king of this kingdom because there is nothing else. And that's what Jesus has in mind when he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. I'd ask you this, is that what you're seeking? Have our ambitions, have our desires, have our relationships, are they submitted to the king of this kingdom? And is it that kingdom that we want more than anything else? Will you pray with me? Father, There is a heaviness and a weight of all of this that I feel. And at the same time, I admit that that weight is lifted off. Because Christ has fulfilled the law and the prophets. And He has taken on the heaviness and weight of my sin. And I know, Father, He has taken on the heaviness and weight of the sin of all those who trust in Him. And He has gone and done what the law demanded. And He bore your wrath. And He has given me life. And I have been forgiven. And the righteousness that I could not have known and have not and will never fully know experientially in my own living has been given and counted to me and to all of those who have believed. And we come today knowing that this text should not be heavy on us to accomplish except for the sheer change of our heart and our desire to love you and to please you and to serve your kingdom and its purpose. Somehow in the course of this, God, I pray that your Spirit would move and work in the hearts of every person here and every person in Oak Valley. And Father, I pray this prayer for all of those who profess you and all of those who will profess you, that this would be true of them because it brings you honor and glory. And hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.